Well, if you are a property owner in BC, you likely received your BC assessment in the mail this past week. You might still be waiting for it, but a lot of people will be paying close attention to the numbers on that assessment and the impact those numbers could have. Uh, Michael Geller joins us now. He's a Vancouver in architect, also a planner, and he writes a column in the Vancouver Courier, which is about the assessments and about some of the new taxes. Michael, thanks so much for being with us this morning. Good morning. It's my pleasure. Uh, the uh, column you've written is about, uh, well, the assessments and some of the changes. And uh, interesting uh, for people, the, the title being Don't Expect Big Changes in the Housing Market Except Maybe Your Tax Bill. Uh, what do you mean by that? Well, I think the truth is, you know, anyone who listens regularly to CKNW is constantly hearing different uh, real estate experts uh, telling us what's likely going to happen. And the truth is, I think very few of us have any real understanding of what will be happening in the housing market in the coming year. I mean, certainly the direction at the moment is heading down. That may or may not change. But the one thing that is certain is that many people are going to see some significant increases in their property taxes. And that's because the province is now playing in the municipal sandbox. Normally, property taxes are determined by the municipality. But now the province is getting involved with their new so-called school tax, and I call it the so-called school tax, uh, because as I think we all know, it's not necessarily even going towards schools. It's just going to general revenues. So, sure, this is going to apply to people whose homes have suddenly... uh, increased or homes that are worth more than $3 million. And most of your listeners are saying, do we really need to worry about people whose homes are worth $3 million? Can't they look after themselves? Yes, they're fortunate. But I think many people are now starting to worry, Jill, that that threshold of $3 million may one day come down to $2.5 million and then $2 million. And eventually the province, especially this government, uh, will continue to start tapping adding to the municipal property taxes. And uh, the reason I wrote the column is because um, I don't think I can change that now. I think the government is committed to this school tax. But I did want to at least give some advice to those people throughout Metro Vancouver, not just in the city of Vancouver, but in North Shore, Coquitlam, and elsewhere, and other parts of the province, where they're going to see a big increase in their assessed value because their property may be a single-family house today, but it's zoned, or it could be zoned for townhouses or for shops and so forth, and that could result in significant increases. And I've seen, uh, if you look at Canby Corridor, for instance, houses that were once worth $3 million are suddenly worth $10 million, and, but there's something that those owners can do to reduce their taxes. And that's really what I wrote the column about. And what can they do? There's a provision in what they call the BC Assessment Act. It's called Section 19.8. And for those people who got up early to listen to you today who are in these situations, hopefully they'll take advantage of this. Basically, what this section of the Assessment Act does is it allows uh, owners to be assessed at less than the market value where they qualify. And the way they qualify is if they've been the principal, uh, if this has been their principal residence for 10 years or more, and uh, 
then they can make application to have that property assessed at the value as a single-family house and not as a future townhouse site. And, and the savings can be dramatic, especially now because, as I said before, we've got the municipal taxes. But if that home has suddenly doubled in value or tripled, you've got to pay this new school tax on that. And that school tax is, is quite a lot of money. And in some instances, the school tax will be more than the municipal taxes. And you've written about this as well, and you're you're right. When we have this conversation, it's it's not as though we're trying. It, it, you don't get a lot of sympathy for people that have three million dollar plus homes because exactly what you said. People say, "Well, you, too bad you can look after yourself." But you've you've written and touched on the fact that yes, this could be opening the door to other properties being swept up in this so called tax, and also there's a bit of a ripple effect on what could happen when it comes to building, when it comes to to the bigger picture. Well, that's right. I'm concerned. I mean, everybody who does not own a home now is wishing that house prices would not just drop. They would like them to crash so that they could then get into the market. And, And I think that's perfectly understandable. But having been around now for five decades in the real estate world, I know that when housing markets do crash or if they do soften significantly, it does have a ripple effect because all of a sudden developers start canceling projects and this is happening already. I think you're going to start hearing over the next couple of months of a number of major projects that simply are not going to proceed. And then again, you'll say, well, that's too bad for the developer. Yes, it is. But it's also too bad for all the contractors and all the engineers and all of the people who are hopefully going to sell uh, furniture for those no homes. And you can begin to see, especially in British Columbia, you know, a big ripple effect through the entire market. And so, you know, yes, house prices have got out of line for most average British Columbians. But I don't think that uh, wishing for a collapse or wishing for more and more government taxes is really the answer. And do we see, do you think the assessments, is it a reflection of the additional taxes, the mortgage rates, or is it, a, is it what, what do you think has led to the assessments that we, we are now seeing in that we're seeing a cooling in detached homes, particularly in Vancouver, we're seeing condos still being assessed up, even though it is a snapshot from July. What do you think is, is, are the factors or the main factors in, in what we're seeing with the assessments? I think it's a a combination of things. There's no doubt that the government stress tests, which effectively reduce someone's buying power by about 20%, have had an impact. But what's interesting is that you would assume that that would have meant that the condo prices would have come down, along with the prices of higher, you know, a lot more expensive homes in West Vancouver or West Van. But in fact, what the assessments show is while the high-end homes have come down, especially those homes over $3 million, the average condo prices have actually gone up. So it's obviously not just the stress test. The other thing is interest rates have slowly started to creep up. Um, I think the main thing, Jill, is that real estate markets are cyclical. Um, What goes up must come down. It's it's a song, but it's also a realistic assessment of housing markets. Our markets did go up, 
But one thing that I think I am a bit confused by, and I think others are as well, is that while we saw about a 7 or to 10% drop in single-family houses at the higher end, um, overall condominium prices have actually gone up, at least between June uh, 2017 and June 2018. Now, I think most people would say prices have come down a little bit since then. But what this says to me is that the uh, school tax and the speculation tax and the empty home tax, uh, the, all of these have had an impact along with those other factors in, in, in softening the market. And again, some people would say, well, isn't that exactly what the government said it wanted to do? Well, actually, what the government said it wanted to do was to make housing more affordable. And so if the $3.5 million house is now worth $2.9 million, does that really help the people who voted in the NDP? And I don't think it does. No, because the very properties that would fall under the, the so-called affordable umbrella are, according to these numbers anyway, are still increasing in price. That's right. The, the $400,000 condominium, on average, between July and July, has actually gone up about, uh, you know, I think between 4 and 7%. In some parts of the province, it's gone up even more. Now, I actually saw this happening, as did others, um, earlier in the year, and uh, posted it on Twitter, and many, many people sort of mocked me for suggesting that, uh, that I was wrong. And they said, surely the trickle-down effect is going to happen. You know, if all the high-end prices come down, then the low-end prices would come down. And I said, well, actually, that's not necessarily going to happen. And indeed, that's what these assessments show. But I think if, uh, if there is one message that I want to share this morning, because most of us can't do anything about these taxes now, it is for those people who are living somewhere where there's a, a change in the zoning or change in the official community plan, and a lot of people are affected by this, um, they should at least uh, pay attention. And it may be that it wasn't just this year. It may have been that they saw a huge jump uh, last year as was the case for people on the Canby Corridor or in Marple, they should at least pay attention and check out this uh, BC Assessment Act provision that at least allows them to apply. Now, the sad thing is you're supposed to apply by November. Um, and I wrote the column last year saying, if you missed it this year, at least apply by it for November next year. Um, most people have either didn't read the column or didn't think about it. But there is a provision that says you have until March um, under Section 19.8 to, to make application, and then you can go and appeal your taxes. And I would encourage people to do that, because I know there are people right now who had a little house in North Vancouver, and it was worth $1.2 million. The official community plan now says that this is a townhouse uh, area, and all of a sudden, it's, got, it's, it's doubled. And uh, it's not fair, in my mind, that they should suddenly have to pay um, higher taxes if they're planning to live in their home. Again, they're lucky that they may be able to cash out at some point. But the interesting thing is so few people even know about this. I only discovered it by accident. <laughs> I was looking at, I'm helping somebody with a site on Cabby Street, and I was curious to see what happened to our assessment. And then there were two lots next door on either side of us. And uh, I checked to see how much their properties were assessed at. And one was assessed at $9 million, and one was assessed at $3 million. I thought, this is impossible. What's going on here? 
And then I looked carefully and I saw the $3 million homeowner had made an application under this provision of the Assessment Act. So they were literally paying one-third the taxes. And now with the new school tax, they'll actually be paying um, significantly less because they won't be subject to uh, what, in this case, could be, uh, well, I think probably about $20,000 in school tax. All right, definitely uh, worth people uh, looking into if they're in that uh, scenario. We will leave it there. Michael, always good to talk to you. Thank you so much. Thanks for your interest. All the best. Well, there has been some new information released when it comes to the number of Canadians currently detained in China. And according to Global Affairs Canada, that number is 13 since the arrest of Huawei executive Meng Wanzhou in Vancouver. That arrest took place on December 1st. But are they all related? That's when things get a little bit more, well, more murky, for lack of a better word. We are joined now by Richard Curland. He's an immigration lawyer here in Vancouver. Vancouver. Uh, Richard Curlin, thank you so much for being with us this morning. Uh, pleasure. Uh, can we make a, a distinct connection between the detention of 13 Canadians in China and the detention of Meng Wanzhou in Vancouver? Uh, not based on the facts of a particular case. This may well be a function of reporting rather than a trend. Canadians often are arrested in China for having the wrong kind of visa or for running afoul of Chinese domestic law. That's not unusual. It's the Canadian extradition, U.S. extradition case that has sparked uh, a trend of reporting arrests of Canadians. Even though these dots may not be connected today, uh, it is prudent to take special measures if you're considering travel to China. And what would you do? What would you suggest to somebody who was going to be traveling there either for pleasure or perhaps on a work visa? Well, the first thing to know is uh, to get the right kind of visa. Don't go for the cheapy tourist visa, which is less expensive than a business visa, because you're trying to save some money. Don't do it you could really end up uh, in, in trouble. There's no room for error, or I put it this way, the room for error in China, prison. Uh, the second thing you can do is ensure that your family and friends have a detailed agenda, itinerary of precisely where you're going to be and when. And you have to have a redundant system of check-in. So if you fail to trigger your check-in protocol, the family or friends will immediately alert Canadian authorities that you've fallen off radar. Those are the easiest ways to deal with this as an individual. Uh, but if something has happened then, if you are detained for some reason, is it enough that uh, family and friends know or they're able to contact Global Affairs? But can Global Affairs do anything at that point? Yes, our, our Canadian diplomatic service does things overseas. Uh, and you can self-register on their website if you're traveling abroad. It's an excellent precaution. Uh, the family should take uh, special measures. There's a, there's a special telephone direct line to Global Affairs for this kind of situation. And uh, you are entitled to consciousness. Now, of course, it is a conscious country. There is no distinction between the judiciary, the, the, the political executive, uh, and you're taking the risk 
by traveling onto that territory that their view of the rule of law is not our view of the rule of law. Uh, so don't be surprised if perhaps you are denied consular access for a period of time. But if you take reasonable precautions, uh, you should be fine. Don't gamble with your personal safety. That's not a Chinese language learning course you want to take. That's the hard way to learn. Take the normal one. <laughs> and is there a, a more of a chance, do you think, uh, even though, so that we, we have the two individuals, uh, Michael Spaver and Michael Kovrig, who were detained, where there seems to be more of a connection being made between those detentions and the arrest of uh, Meng Wanzhou. Is there more of a chance right now, if you're a Canadian traveling in China, that, that you would be detained, whereas perhaps before that arrest, you wouldn't? Well, yes, I would single out today one particular group of Canadian citizens that I give a double warning to. And, and these are our Canadian citizens uh, who have a home country or, or territory of Taiwan. Um, what I'm seeing is President Trump engaged in a massive trade deal. I see in the last uh, few days the president of China uh, taking unusual, forceful, verbal steps regarding military uh, preparation, as well as discussion of Taiwan being in one country with two systems. So what does President Trump have to give in a trade negotiation? I think it's Taiwan. And I think that uh, 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 Canadian-Taiwanese uh, backgrounds are at extra risk. Not only is your Canadian citizenship going to illuminate you on the China grid, uh, connections to Taiwan or alleged connections to, to Taiwan um, may cause additional mischief. So watch out. Hmm. And, and traveling in Taiwan itself, though, is still okay, isn't it? Oh, perfectly clear. It's right. wonderful from <laughs> Taipei to right down to Tainan. That train, it's fantastic. <laughs> um, what do, where do you see this going? Because uh, we've talked about uh, the uh, the detention of Meng Wanzhou in Vancouver, that this could take months, if not years. Uh, do, do these tensions remain high then while this plays out? Yeah, I think that um, over the next few months, we are going to see escalating tensions, not just because of one extradition case. I think that will be resolved in a face-saving way. But don't forget, the Chinese economy is not doing well. There's a high property vacancy rate in China. They have undergone in the last year to extreme financial modifications to their banking and financing systems, causing havoc. Uh, to some leading families. And when you have that recipe, that points to instability. It points to government intervention in China uh, that's going to try to fix things. And that's the bubbling pressure pot that's going to create, I think, a wave of um, corruption-esque cases, extradition requests, and you're going to have people on the ground in China seeking to flee uh, with their wallets and their families to safer places. And that may well result in additional Chinese retribution to Canada and other uh, um, uh, asylum uh, pr uh, provision countries uh, in the West. So this is not going away anytime soon. I think the, 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 the weather patterns are going to show more distress rather than calm skies. Hmm. Would you yourself travel to China right now? I've been thinking of that for months, frankly, uh, and I would personally. I, I just 
don't get a sense that there's fear on the ground. There's only one thing that would make me change my point of view. If I began to see in Vancouver or elsewhere in Canada public demonstrations beginning at the universities, following into the streets of two groups, pro-China and uh, pro-Canada, as, as it were, uh, when I start to see boots on the ground in that fashion, given uh, the, the, the social culture of, of uh, the, the people concerned, I would think twice, because now, now you've got a, a, a public dispute, very public dispute. And the message right now I have to our um, Chinese-Canadian citizens or from greater China is, don't worry, many are stressed right now with this because the homeland problems are coming to roost in Canada. And some are feeling, and I know it because my clients are telling me, that maybe Canada is not welcoming us. And the message should be clearly stated by Ottawa. You are us. We do not distinguish between a Chinese Canadian and any other type. A Canadian is a Canadian is a Canadian. You're safe here. You're sound here. You belong here. And that's the message that must go out to our affected communities. All right. And, and just to recap on, on something you touched off off the beginning, too, because that was one of my questions, is that uh, the, the number of detentions, be it in China or other countries around the world, uh, we have another case right now of a, a man from Nanaimo, uh, we believe, being detained in Syria. Uh, the number of detentions are probably just because we haven't heard about them doesn't mean they, they aren't happening. Well, that's exactly it. And uh, I'll give you a personal example, fast, of, of their technology. They showed me their new biometric stuff when it was new. And you walk by, the, you take seven, eight steps towards a screen, hundreds of photos flash. And by the time you're on step number five, your photo is frozen on screen for that uh, government official. So uh, they like to boast and brag that they can arrest, identify and arrest any individual within an urban center inside of 30 minutes. You can get arrested faster than you can get a pizza in Canada. So, yes, there are arrests that have not been reported. The potential for arrest is there. Will they pull the trigger on a particular individual? Unknown. Highly unlikely, given the volumes of travel from Canada to the United States. But possible. So take those reasonable precautions before embarkation to China. Uh, do you think the government, should there be a, a travel warning issued, a, 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 an actual warning from the government? Um, I don't think we should follow the United States in this, even though they've doubled up on that in the last uh, two days, warning American citizens uh, that uh, traveling to China is a risk. Uh, we have our independent uh, process, uh, and, and I can't see Canada leaping on a bandwagon without fact, without evidence. Uh, just uh, arrests are terrible, but um, you have to watch the trend. You have to find out why these people were arrested. You know, <laughs> there's a presumption of innocence, but uh, if you're, there's a lot of people from Canada and China, and I know from experience that a lot of these Canadians don't follow the local rules. They either don't have the right visa, or like anyone else, uh, they have one too many at the bar <laughs> and get into some trouble locally. All right. Very good advice, especially uh, at this time. Richard, we'll let you go, but thank you so much for joining us. Appreciate your time today. <laughs> Always a pleasure. Thanks, Joe. <laughs> 
Well, we uh, have talked about gas prices on this program before. Anybody who uh, drives around in Metro Vancouver or the Fraser Valley uh, knows they can fluctuate, also knows that we pay a lot for our gas. Well, let's talk about what it might look like in the days and weeks to come. And joining me on the line is Dan McTagg, Senior Petroleum Analyst at GasBuddy.com. Dan, good morning. Uh, good morning to you, Jill, and good morning to all your listeners. I know it's impossible to say exactly what's going to happen, but even yesterday I was driving around. Uh, I got gas at $1.36. A couple of hours later, I drove by another gas station. It was $1.20, and uh, we're seeing those fluctuations. Uh, do we know what's causing that right now? Well, the one thing, Jill, you're seeing, uh, $1.36 is a little high, and I can tell you that the gas station there is likely charging uh, about a $0.14 cent retail margin. Basically, Operating costs are usually about ten to twelve cents a liter, so most gas stations will start off at about a dollar thirty four point nine uh, by the way it 's coming down a penny tomorrow, not that that really makes a big difference on the wholesale side, but it 's uh, heading certainly slightly in the right direction. but many stations uh, and i 'm assuming these stations find themselves within the area served by translink and that 's critical to know because that 's an eleven cent tax uh, on every liter of gasoline in those regions that are served by translink. And it defines the difference really between uh, those of us buying gasoline within this very expansive area and those just outside. So, for instance, Abbotsford would not be covered by that. I realize it's quite a lot of ways out. So the big difference and the only difference is what's called the retail margin. And so you find some gas stations uh, will use gasoline as a lost leader now. Uh, and certainly on weekends, there are deals to be had, which is why using the Gas Buddy app, which is free to download, will save uh, people as much as 10, 12 cents a liter if they can shop around. But generally speaking, the wholesale price uh, has uh, certainly fluctuated over the past couple of weeks, especially after the 15th of December when your colleague uh, uh, Janet Brown was able to uh, break through some news that uh, prices would be going up as much as 17 cents a liter due to a disruption uh, with the uh, Olympic uh, pipeline, which supplies a lot of gasoline, uh, not just throughout the Pacific Northwest, but for us here in Vancouver. It can be frustrating, though, for drivers, particularly drivers in Metro Vancouver, when we see the exact same gasoline sold in other markets for much less. Well, yeah, I mean, there's a premium that we are paying right now for gasoline uh, over and above what the market uh, would require. Jill, if I'm, uh, you know, a a gas station, uh, say in Whatcom County, just south of the border in the United States, my cost for gasoline uh, is about a buck fifty a gallon. Uh, now that's translated backwards. That works out to about fifty four, fifty three cents a, a liter with the Canadian exchange rate. In Vancouver, it's seventy two point five. What it means is that because we are price takers, we are product takers, we import probably as much as a third of all of our fuel needs. Uh, prices are much higher to attract people to make up the difference. We are desperately short of gasoline in the lower mainland. Now, to those quickly coming to the conclusion that we need to build another refinery, um, I would have to say that uh, that kind of an outcome is not likely, especially given Ottawa's uh, recent legislation making uh, Clean Fuel Standards Act uh, and uh, pipeline uh, changes on Bill C-69 a virtual impossibility. No one has the money to outlay for 10 years to build you know, state-of-the-art refineries that uh, are subject potentially to disruptions, the likes of which we saw with the uh, Trans Mountain Pipeline. Yeah. Uh, there have been predictions that this is going to uh, be a turbulent year. Is that what we are bracing for? 
Well, those were my predictions, and I said it, well, you would see a, a, a year of extreme volatility, and that uh, what we're going to likely see, Joe, is a replay of the high prices we saw last year, perhaps in the one the dollar sixty range, and at times perhaps dropping into the one twenty range. Uh, here's the factors that I think, uh, short of where we stand here as really uh, the only region in the country that has to import fuel to meet our needs. We have to recognize the external factors, which can have you know any uh, you know any any play on how things turn out. If, for instance, the U.S. and China fail to come to an agreement on tariffs and trade, that would mean uh, uh, oil and gasoline uh, places, prices would likely tumble. Now, that's not likely to happen in uh, in our scenario in the 2019 gas buddy uh, fuel outlook. Uh, both in Canada and the United States, we've suggested prices will remain firm. In Canada, they'll be a little higher than 2018, if for no other reason the fact that the uh, governments of, of many provinces uh, and government of Canada have uh, decided that they're going to uh, impose a carbon tax in regions that certainly don't that currently don't have it. So that'd be Ontario, Manitoba, New Brunswick, um, and Saskatchewan, and the maritime provinces themselves will will come up with their own plan for April 1st. Of course, here in Vancouver. Uh, we're looking on April 1st, not only at a $5 a ton increase, which works out to about 1.2 cents a litre with GST, you now have another TransLink tax that's uh, also set to roll on April the 1st, which will also co- coincide with the time in which we switch over from cheaper to make winter gasoline to summer gasoline. So <laughs> you're looking at a pretty, expen- <laughs> pretty expensive April, May, June, July, and August. Right, just in, just in time for the summer driving season. <laughs> You may want to take a scooter, <laughs> but I, I, I sense that uh, the uh, the days of lower prices, as we're seeing now, may be fewer and far between. Uh, OPEC, uh, even Alberta, uh, Russia are all uh, planning and in the process now of delivering on massive cuts in terms of oil production, and it's for that reason that uh, you know, in the case of OPEC. Uh, they're not going to get fooled by, you know, the president of the United States coming in and saying we're going to, you know, seal off three million barrels of Iranian oil exports uh, with a sanction, and then at the last minute decide to uh, give waivers. The effect of which is not to seal off any of the oil. In the meantime, OPEC had gone out and produced another two million barrels of oil surplus a day. That's what sent oil prices tumbling, and that's why we went from a buck fifty a liter down to a dollar, you know, thirty five, dollar thirty two here in Vancouver. So. All things being considered equal, that's not likely to happen again. We'll be back to the dollar forty-five, dollar fifty-five range by March, and potentially higher, back to the one fifty-five and maybe touching one sixty range throughout much of uh, the summer, especially after the three point three cent increase in tagging gas taxes that you're going to see here for Vancouver. Uh, which which is not welcome news, I'm sure, to to a lot of people. And whether you're driving or whether you're buying goods that are are driven here, uh, but we it wasn't that long ago we we were at that 160 mark and the gas prices were there, and that was without the new taxes, as you mentioned, that we're going to see in April. So the all-time high we saw was a dollar thirteen, sorry, dollar sixty three point nine on October thirteenth after the. Uh, explosion of the Enbridge gas, natural gas uh, pipeline that delivered a substantial amount of uh, of the uh, uh, the need for U.S. Uh, refineries in uh, the uh, uh, in the Puget Sound, the Olympic Peninsula, and Ferndale, etc. Those uh, those factors uh, aside, uh, it still looks like 
we're going to continue to see upward pressure on prices, obviously not helped by governments helping themselves to an ever-increasing amount. By the way, with the increase on April 1st, uh, and as I mentioned uh, earlier uh, to uh, Janet uh, Brown, uh, one of your reporters, uh, this will make uh, Vancouver the most expensive fuel-taxed jurisdictions anywhere in North America. Uh, you'll be displacing Montreal, and as I mentioned, <clears throat> being number one for something isn't always a good thing, uh, but that will mean that about 55 cents on every litre of gasoline uh, will be now earmarked as uh, taxes to one administration uh, or another, federal, provincial, municipal, transit, etc., carbon. So all of these things are beginning to add up, and they're taking quite a toll. My sense is that you're going to be seeing a lot more people driving south of the border at an increasing rate uh, than you've seen in the past. Uh, I think you're absolutely right. Uh, For people that can do that, uh, we'll definitely be doing that. All right, uh, Dan, we will leave it there, but thank you so much uh, for joining us and talking the news. uh, Not a lot of drivers wanted to hear, but thanks uh, for keeping us up to date. No, my pleasure. I wish it could be better news. Well, as you may have heard in the news, the city of Vancouver has now handed out three business licenses to retail cannabis stores. Uh, This after provincial regulators approved the first provincial license, and this was approved to the Evergreen Cannabis Society for a Kitsilano store. It was supposed to open last week, but there were holidays and there were some delays with paperwork and such. So it is now set to open later this morning. And joining me on the line to talk a bit more about how things are going to unfold fold is the owner of the Evergreen Cannabis Society, Mike Babbins. Mike, thanks so much for taking a few minutes with us this morning. Can we put the Black Sabbath back on? That was awesome. <laughs> of course. You want to just playing in the background the entire time? Just just, just leave Ozzy going, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Uh, how are things going? Is everything set to open up as planned today? We're, we're uh, it was a late night, but uh, everything is ready to go, so... Here we go. Let's see what happens. <laughs> uh, so we found out as well that uh, City Cannabis has also been approved for two locations uh, in Vancouver. This is another company, one on, on Robson and one on Fraser. Uh, they did a bit of a soft launch last night and I think are officially opening today as well. Uh, how do you think this will change the landscape now that uh, we have the legal operations like yours? That's a very, very good thing. More legal operations, less illegal operations, and uh, the more legalization moves forward. We, this should have happened months ago, but it has been a slow process. There's a lot to do, and uh, more the merrier, I say. And what was the process like? I, I know you were kind of swept up in the holidays, and that slowed things down a bit. But what was the process like getting to this point? There was lots and lots of paperwork, lots and lots of questions. Sir. Uh, they basically audited us for the past 20 years, where we've been, what we've done. They, they know I worked there at CKNW for a little while. <laughs> They, they checked every penny we made um, and came from. It was very thorough. And was it worth it? We'll find out at 11 o'clock this morning. Right. <laughs> um, there have been concerns with more, I think what I think there are five now in BC, but concerns with, with more storefronts opening up across the country. Uh, there have been concerns about supply. Uh, are you confident you'll be able to keep supply on the shelves? Uh, 100% confident. To, uh, I've spoken with the province about that. The issue with supply was that there weren't enough workers to fill the bottles. Uh, so everyone's ramped up production, and uh, the supply is getting bigger and bigger. Producers are having more and more farms to grow with. I think that was a little glitch at the beginning. It won't happen here in B.C. 
And what do you do as far as a customer base? Because here we have something that even though it's it was an illegal thing for so long, it certainly was something that was widespread that a lot of people partake in and will continue. How do you get somebody who maybe has the person they purchase from, maybe continues going to some of the dispensaries that are operating illegally? How do you get that customer to come to you? How often do you uh, walk into the liquor store and say, oh, no, wait a minute, I know some guy who makes some backyard hooch instead. I I think uh, the black market will slowly eliminate itself, as it did with alcohol 100 years ago. And and you're confident with that? Oh, yeah. One of our old labs we work with told me that 90% of the cannabis from dispensaries in the city has got mold, mildew, or pesticides on it, yet it gets sold anyways. So you can make the choice yourself. And how do people know then that, that purchasing at your store that won't have any of those things? It's coming from the government. Everything is <clears throat> everything is 100% tested um, and then put in a sanitary container. It's There's no middleman along the way. So once they have it all ready to go, there's nothing that act. Unlike an illegal store, if there is an issue, it gets recalled. Uh, let's look at romaine lettuce. Romaine lettuce never hurt anyone. Mm-hmm. A couple of weeks ago, we had a, a situation with that. It was pulled, and no one would get sick that way. So, you know, we're just like anywhere else right now. Um, in Vancouver, the, the, is it the annual fee is about $33,000 for the business license fee for uh, a cannabis store. Is that a deterrent? Because it seems like a high fee. It's a very high fee. That's the, the largest check I've ever written in my life. <laughs> Uh, you know, and, and they will be bringing it down. They started, they chose that number when cannabis was still illegal and Vancouver was the first city in Canada to legitimize the sale of it. So, you know, they had to do what they had to do at that point. Now that it's legal and through, they're going to sit, discuss it. We're going to speak with them a lot, send a lot of emails, and hopefully within the year they will cut that down. And what do you say about the uh, remaining uh, shops in Vancouver? There are still, I think, about 40 that don't have the license. They haven't gone through the hoops that you've gone through to get the right paperwork and such. They continue uh, to operate illegally. What do you have to say about them? I I can't speak them, but I do. I'm sure everything will work itself out in the end. But does it seem unfair that that here are these shops that, that haven't gone through what you've gone through and they're still able to sell that product? Oh, of course it's unfair, but it's it's been going on for a while. So, you know, there's nothing I personally can do about it. I know the province has a plan uh, when they set out their inspectors. I don't think that these stores' landlords will be very happy to get a $100,000 fine. I don't think the last very long ones are going to given out. But, again, it ain't up to me. <laughs> and, and Mike, what drew you to this? Uh, you mentioned you did used to work here at CKNW. Uh, you've done other things in your life. What drew you to going into a business where uh, you are going to have to deal with security, uh, you, you have to deal with, with uh, things that maybe uh, other stores wouldn't have to deal with? What was the draw for you? Oh, well, the old joke is uh, I wasn't making enough in radio, so I had to start selling weed. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> Uh, we, we, when I first moved to Vancouver, you know, I thought it was great that there were dispensaries and I was using them recreationally. Uh, then my wife, and uh, who's my partner at the store, uh, was diagnosed with precancer cells in her uterus, and we decided to use a natural approach to attack that. We did use cannabis, and I found when I went into the stores that I had been having fun at and asked serious medical questions, I couldn't get answers. I thought, here we are with a brand new industry, uh, something that you know, can change the way everything is done in Canada and the people who are using it are basically treating it like 
glorified drug dealers, and I thought that was ridiculous. So put my money where my mouth was and started to do it. And the the store, so you have the store opening today, the, the Kitsilano location. What are your plans for the future? Uh, I'm probably going to leave early to go watch the hockey game this afternoon, uh, but I don't have any plans past that because I have no clue what today's going to look like. <laughs> Do you hope, though, I mean, obviously any business person hopes that it's a success. Is it something that you, you would like to open more stores and, and build that way? Well, if I have to go through all I went through to get this one open, it's, I'm not rushing more stores. <laughs> it was a lot of work. I'd like to just let, let our baby grow for a bit. Uh, you know, there are you're always thinking bigger, bigger, but we just want to have a in-world business. I could take care of my wife and myself and keep our staff happy. And if opportunities arise in the future, we'll obviously take them, but a bit of a break. Let's just get today up and running and then we're about tomorrow after that. All right. You mentioned staff. That's always an issue for small businesses too, is getting enough staff. Was that a challenge? It's, uh, we've never had a problem with that. We've got really, really good staff. Um, what the real challenge was, uh, from the day of legalization until today, we kept them on and we paid them, but we had no income coming in. So we just watched our bank account get lower and lower and lower this whole time. But, you know, they're appreciative and, and we love having them, you know, so we'll just keep taking care of each other. All right. Well, hopefully things change. Uh, what time do the doors open today? 11 o'clock. Get in line right now and bring an umbrella just in case. (laughs) All right. Uh, Mike Babbins, thank you so much. Uh, Congratulations on getting uh, all of the paperwork done and the the doors opening today. And uh, thanks for sharing a few moments with us this morning. Appreciate it. Thanks for having me.